the judge never got to the copyright question. That was never part of the settlement. Essentially, the nail in the coffin of the settlement was opposition by the Department of Justice, who essentially fought the argument that was made by a number of, in fact, over 20 different people and organizations lined up to speak against the settlement. And Judge Chin ended up buying the argument that you know, allowing Google to do this settlement essentially would give them a monopoly over these scanned books. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a couple of blogs, one called Law Sites and another called Media Law. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a very bright and sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? Craig, you always depress me. It's dismal in Boston uh, and raining and pouring and miserable. I know, Bob. I was born near there. (laughs) Well, before we introduce today's topic, I'd like to just take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is a leading provider of online practice management for lawyers. You can find out more about Clio at www.goclio.com. Well, and Bob, today we're going to be speaking on a decision that the media is referring to as a landmark copyright case involving online book scanning. Eight years ago, Google began scanning books, making them commercially available and more thoroughly searchable. In other words, users can search within the text of the books. The Authors Guild immediately challenged Google's book scanning under the copyright infringement laws, and the authors did not grant permission for their books to be scanned including this author. And in turn, Google challenged the Authors Guild on the basis of fair use. After a long legal battle, Judge Denny Chin of New York ruled that Google met all four legal factors for a successful defense to copyright infringement. That's right. In Chin's 30-page decision, he said that Google's massive book scanning project benefits society by making books more available and easily searchable. Uh, Google's use of the work makes the scanning fair use under copyright law, he said. If the ruling had favored the Authors Guild, Google could have been uh, liable for $150,000 per copyright infringement. Google has scanned an estimated 20 million books uh, so far. The Guild has said it plans to appeal the decision immediately. Uh, Paul Aiken, the Authors Guild executive director, argues that Google is profiting off of making unauthorized digital versions of copyright works and that the mass digitization and exploitation exceeds the bounds of fair use defense. Google argues that their digital library acts as a card catalog for the digital age, aiding Internet users in deciding which books to purchase. Well, and today we're going to be speaking with the senior writer for Publishers Weekly, Andrew Albanese. Andrew focuses on copyright wars and how the Internet is changing protected works. His book, The Battle of $9.99, How Apple, Amazon, and the Big Six Publishers Changed the Ebook Business Overnight. He's covered the Apple price-fixing case and the introduction of ebooks to society. He's also covered the publishing and information technology field for more than a decade. Prior to his focus in copyright, he was the editor of American History at Oxford University Press. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Greetings, gentlemen. Happy to be here. Well, Andrew, I wonder if you could start by giving our listeners a recap of Judge Chin's decision here. Uh, what were the issues and what, were, what did he decide? 
Well, I think you framed it pretty nicely in your introduction. This was, at its heart, a fair use case. Uh, and to my mind, it's a fair use case that we'll never likely see again. It's a fair use applied on an industrial scale. Usually when we hear of fair use cases, they involve uh, very specific uses, and they certainly don't involve the scanning of 20 million works. But as you know, it began in 2004 when Google announced that it was going to partner with five libraries to scan the contents of out-of-print books on their shelves. From Google's point of view, they were worried that all of this knowledge, all of these books that were sort of moldering on library shelves was going to be lost in the digital transition unless somehow those things made it onto the web. So Google undertook an effort to scan all of this stuff and to index it and to make it searchable. It's not exactly true, as the Authors Guild would have you believe, that they made them commercially available. In fact, they did not make the books commercially available. They made snippets of the books available, which you know I don't know if snippet was a term recognized in the courts until this case, but they just would use, they would allow small amounts of text, less than 250 words generally, to be displayed around a search term that a user put in. And as you note, the Authors Guild and the publishers both balked at this. They claimed that the massive scanning program far exceeded the bounds of fair use, and they challenged the Google program in court and sought to shut it down until, of course, Judge Chin uh, ruled that it was, in fact, fair use. But actually, Judge Chin was beaten to the punch in another case. The Authors Guild had also sued a group of Google's library partners, known as the Hadi Trust, over their role in the scanning, and that was also ruled fair use by Judge Harold Baer in October of last year. So we actually have two pretty strong fair use rulings in favor of Google scanning now. So I'm a little bit familiar with it uh, because I've followed along. I'm a member of the Authors Guild, and I remember seeing some publications from the Authors Guild that there were some significant settlement discussions and some efforts on both sides. Can you tell us about what happened with the settlement discussions? Why didn't they work? That was really the the main thrust of all of this. In 2008, all the parties came together and decided that, geez, you know, we are never going to be able to work through our issues on copyright. We're just going to have to agree to disagree here. And as Paul Aiken, who's the head of the Authors Guild in 2008, still is actually, said, you know, they had to, in order to succeed, they had to take an audacious program like Google Scanning Project and make it a little, a little more audacious. So they came up with a settlement that essentially turned Google's library, if you will, or its index of all these scanned books into a bookstore, or at least it would have done so had it been approved. But ultimately, after three years of stumping together, that's the publishers, the authors, and Google spent literally three years out on the road trying to get this thing passed through the courts, it was rejected by Judge Chin as being not fair and reasonable. And that was really a blow to everybody, because once the settlement broke down, what we were left with is back to litigation. But not only were we back to litigation over copyright, a significant amount of time had passed. And during that time, the Authors Guild case was harmed, I believe, because they weren't able to show that the harm that they predicted back in 2005 had come to pass. In fact, the ebook market had grown and no books had been stolen as the Authors Guild had worried. So I, I think that the delay actually ended up hurting the Authors Guild when that settlement went down. I was just going to follow up on that question, Andrew. How is it that the judge was able to make the determination that the settlement reached between the parties wasn't fair? I mean, isn't that the province of the parties? That's a great question. And, you know, the judge never got to the copyright questions. That was never part of the settlement. Essentially, the nail in the coffin of the settlement was opposition by the Department of Justice, who essentially bought the argument that was made by a number of, in fact, 
over 20 different people and organizations lined up to speak against the settlement. And Judge Chen ended up buying the argument that, you know, allowing Google to do this settlement essentially would give them a monopoly over these scanned books. And he, there was a point to be made there, and I think it was made pretty effectively, that no other company was going to undertake the expense of going through and digitizing books once Google had done it. And if the settlement was approved, only Google was going to enjoy immunity from copyright infringement. So that created a barrier for other competitors to come into the market and start scanning books. I don't think any of them ever would anyway, but you know that was just the chief undoing of the settlement. And I think part of the problem there was that came in the context of a purported resolution of a class action, settling the matter as a class action. And I think because of the uh, settlement on a class-wide basis, it required the judge to uh, sign off on it. He does address it briefly in this recent ruling, in which he, he says that he rejected that earlier proposed settlement on the grounds that it was not fair, adequate, and reasonable. That's right. There was a hearing, and you know I had the privilege of actually sitting in the jury box during that hearing because they ran out of room in the courtroom. So I had a great, great seat for that hearing. And one by one, there was, I believe, 26 speakers and all spoke that day, 21 of them spoke against the settlement. And there were some pretty major powerhouses that were actually lined up trying to sink the settlement as well, one of which was Amazon, who had actually hired a famed copyright lawyer, David Nimmer, to press its case. And of course, now we know, meanwhile, that while you know, Google was working on capturing out-of-print books, Amazon was hard at work developing the Kindle, which would launch today's commercial ebook market. I thought one of the interesting aspects of this decision was his discussion of transformative use. And uh, that was a key issue for him, was looking at whether this constituted transformative use. Uh, I'm just going to read a paragraph here from his decision. He says, Google's use of the copyrighted works is highly transformative. Google Books digitizes books and transforms expressive text into a comprehensive word index that helps readers, scholars, researchers, and others find books. Google Books has become an important tool for libraries and librarians and site checkers as it helps to identify and find books. The use of book text to facilitate search through the display of snippets is transformative. He almost seems quite <laughs> quite smitten with Google's use of the text in this sense. But this, to me, this, you know, I understand, I hear, I hear you saying this has been decided already by another judge to some extent, but it seems to me this is significant going forward in this digital age for a judge to be declaring that the sort of widespread digitization of other people's work constitutes a transformative use. I wonder if you have any thoughts on the implications of that, you know, beyond this particular case. Well, I think you're exactly right. I mean, not only did Chin declare that Google scanning was legal, he declared it totally awesome. I mean, he really did. Uh, you know, most of the decision is a kind of stirring defense of a book digitization and all of the good that can come from it. How that plays going forward remains to be seen. You mentioned the Hobby Trust case again with Judge Harold Bear. That just had its hearing before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, three-judge panel, did not seem poised to overturn that ruling. They seem to buy much of the fair use rationale that Judge Bear, just like Judge Chin, had put forward. What it means going forward remains to be seen, because I don't think, I think we're pretty much at the end of the digitization cycle. Pretty much everything that was going to be digitized in our libraries has been digitized or has been opted into a digitization program by those who are, you know, the rights holders just now. So in the future, I don't think digitization is really going to be a major issue. And one other thing I'll note about this is that if you look throughout all of Chin's various rulings throughout this case on different procedural matters, he constantly referred to this 
as about scanning and display. He never said scanning. He always said scanning and display. He was very careful to include those two things together. So I think that that is, is telling as to how he was going to view the case. It's pretty obvious that Amazon and ultimately Google will be making some amount of money on this effort. Obviously, companies like this don't scan in 20 million books just for the fun of it. So despite the fact that it's fair use, perhaps the snippets are fair use, but it seems to me that if you display the entire book digitally, for example, my book, then you owe me a fee. Uh, and I don't understand how Chin or Google gets around the fact that if you display the entire book, you're not going to pay me for the copyright violation. Because to me, it seems like it's a copyright violation. Well, Google does not display the entire book unless there is permission from the rights holder to do so. They only display small amounts of text around the search term that's inputted. Now, I've seen a number of people who have complained that, well, look, here's my whole book on Google. But then you scroll down and you notice that there was actually a rights holder permission given by somebody somewhere. Maybe the author thinks they own the copyright. Maybe the publisher thinks they own the copyright. But somebody opted it into a program somewhere, which is how, when there are entire books made available, on Google Books is how it happens. So yes, I would agree. If Google was displaying entire books and you could just go on and read an entire book on Google Book Search, then that would be a problem. But in fact, uh, that's not what's happening. It seems if I understood the case, one of the Authors Guild arguments was that you could kind of manipulate the search in Google Books that you could bring up substantially more than snippets. If you were clever in your construction of search terms, you could bring up uh, big chunks of text of some of these books, at least uh, at least according to the way the Authors Guild characterized it. I, I think Judge Chin made made short shrift of that argument, but uh, yes. that was one of their one of their arguments. He certainly did make short work of that, and it's true. I mean, you could possibly theoretically do that, but my goodness, if you're going to go through all that trouble, you may as well just, you know, buy a book, a cheap book scanner and, you know, rip the print version. If you're that determined to make a copy and get a free copy, of, you're, you're better off buying the book than going through the effort that that would take. So he did make pretty short trip to that argument. Uh, he found that it just was not a reasonable argument that anybody would sit down and go through that much effort to construct an entire book. How does this decision jive with online music and online movies? Is there any possible spillover or effect on, say, iTunes or Napster or anyone else along those lines, or Netflix that's displaying snippets of movies or music? Is this copyright applicable to other media? Theoretically, it is, but I doubt that that would ever happen. I mean, most other media, including music, and movies are, there's different standards that apply for determining fair use. And certainly, nobody would ever be foolish enough, I think, to believe that they could scan someone's entire music library and put it out there, given the litigious nature of the recording industry. And, you know, plus there's licensing regimes that are already in place there that are pretty much, you know, mitigated this from ever happening in those industries. Do you think that we're looking at the end of copyrights? I mean, at this point in time, do you think that the uh, laws of copyright have sounded the death knell and we're about ready to put it in a coffin and bury it? Well, I hope not, because I think copyright is tremendously powerful and tremendously flexible. And I do think that there are fixes that need to be made to the copyright system. Absolutely. I think that it's become a little cumbersome and not quite, doesn't quite fit well with the digital age. But I do think that copyright is increasingly threatened by licensed access, which is what we have in the digital age. You know, you don't own anything like you would own a copy of a book anymore. You just merely are a licensed access to stuff now. And in a license, 
license, in those click on licenses that you know you have to click yes on in order to open your ebook or your other file that you access digitally, you know, fair use can be written out of those things. You know, other copyright rights can be written out of those things. And that's you know being challenged in some other cases right now, most notably Redigi, which tried to essentially port the first sale doctrine over to digital goods. I think it's fair to say that copyright is certainly under pressure from a licensed access environment, but I wouldn't say that it's uh, in the throes of its, you know, of a death grasp right now. We need to take a short break right now. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more discussion with Andrew Albanese, senior writer for Publishers Weekly, about this fascinating case. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams here with my co-host Bob Ambrosi. And we're speaking with Andrew Albanese. He is the senior writer for Publishers Weekly. Andrew, what's your your personal assessment of Judge Chin's decision? You know, just as a regular everyday person who covers this stuff, and you've, I'm sure, talked to an awful lot of people, what's the general reaction of folks around the country to this decision? You know, there's... Well, first, my reaction to this personally, and not speaking for my employer here, I think it's the right decision. I really do. I think that it's it shows the strength and flexibility of copyright, and you know, I, I think it's probably a good decision. But I also have issues with the way Judge Chin allowed this all to unfold. It was a great story for me to be covering for eight years, so I'll thank Judge Chin for that. But you know, at the end of the day, this was always a copyright case, and it was always going to have to boil down to something like this. And I was very dubious of the settlement. Now, there's some very good things that were in the settlement. You know, there was going to be a, a rights registry that was going to be founded. There was going to be a payment mechanism. There was going to be an institutional repository that libraries could subscribe to. And instead of snippets, this was going to allow 20% of a book to be accessed online instead of just a few words around a search term. There was a lot more access that was going to be granted. However, the chances of getting the settlement through were very nil. And while we waited for this settlement to be adjudicated by Judge Chin, and it took him well over a year to write his decision rejecting this, and the whole process took three years, innovation and digitization and by other companies pretty much ground to a halt. 
Nobody was willing to step out on a limb and expand the bounds of what we might achieve. And that's too bad, because in the end, the greatest thing that Google gets from this is not a collection of books, but this distillation of knowledge, you know, that they're able to use this great corpus to build new research tools, to allow for text mining and data analysis, things for all of these long-forgotten out-of-print books where they can now be examined in total, where researchers can look for terms throughout all of these books. And, you know, I would love to think that if not for this litigation and if not for the time spent not skirting the issue that ended up coming back anyway, which was the copyright issue, that we would have had a little more innovation and a little more competition among archives and other computer companies. That's really interesting. I mean, I'm sure the Authors Guild would have been thrilled if they had been able to get the settlement, at least in retrospect, they would have been far better off with the settlement uh, than what they came up with here. Absolutely true. I mean, and it was, uh, I'll give them credit, it was a very creative deal that they had, and it was a deal that would have benefited a lot of people. What do you think the Authors Guild's chances are on appeal? Do you think that their arguments are winners, or do you think the appellate court's going to look at this and say, a little too much, too late? I don't think that the arguments are winners, but don't quote me on that. You know, I certainly am not one to get hit in the face when somebody throws in the towel in a legal case. And, you know, there's another fair use case right now in the 11th Circuit over a practice in libraries known as electronic reserves, in which Judge Arinda Evans delivered a very strong fair use decision on behalf of libraries in that case. And uh, last week, there was two weeks ago now, there was a hearing in front of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in which it seemed like they were going to dump it, that they were ready to overturn that decision and send it back to the court. So you never know what's going to happen on appeal. But judging from the way a three-judge panel of the Second Circuit viewed virtually the identical issues in the Hottie Trust case over Google scanning, it seems to me that the Authors Guild is probably not going anywhere with its appeal. I thought one of the interesting aspects of this decision was the argument by the Authors Guild that this copying was going to hurt their author's sales and revenues. And again, Judge Chin dismisses this, giving a quote here again, he says, to the contrary, a reasonable fact finder could only find that Google Books enhances the sales of books to the benefit of copyright holders. He says, an important factor in the success of an individual title is whether it is discovered, whether potential readers learn of its existence. And Google Books provides a way for authors' works to become noticed, much like traditional in-store book displays. Andrew, what's your, what's your opinion on that? I mean, do you agree with Judge Chin on that, or, or do you think the authors still have a strong argument that they're being hurt in some way? Not only do I agree with Judge Chin on that, but the authors agree with Judge Chin on that, because almost everyone... <laughs> You know, there's 30,000 publishers who are now partnering with Google to make their things available through Google. They're volunteering their works to be scanned. I think that that's absolutely true, that Google Book Search enables sales of books. But this is a great example of, uh, and you put, picked out the right quote from that decision, this is a great example of how the delay in getting this case to trial, or at least in the summary judgment stage, really hurt the author's guild. Because you can see how in 2005, when Google first emerged on the scene with this radical technology known as book scanning, where the fear was. You know, who knows what Google is going to be doing? And let's face it, Google didn't play nice. Google didn't sit down with anybody and say, you know, bring them into the process and say, this is what we'd like to do. We'd like you to come along. Let's work this out. They did it. Uh, you know, they were of the opinion that they were going to ask forgiveness rather than permission, as, as technology companies often do. So, you know, in 2005, if this had come up for a, a quick hearing then, 
you could probably see where the Authors Guild might win. But here we are all these years later, and the harm that the Authors Guild had predicted did not come to pass. And in fact, not only did that harm not come to pass, you could see a number of books actually benefited from being able to be found on the web and purchased. Is there a next step for Google here? I mean, Google succeeded here because it's putting these books online only in these snippets. It's offering only these snippets, and and the snippets are fair use. Does Google, now that it's got this, start to push the envelope, do you think? Do do they start to put a little bit more online, open the snippets a little more broadly? Uh, Do you see anything like that happening, or is Google married to what it's doing? I don't think that Google would... Google is always going to push the envelope, right? We know that much about the company at this point. But frankly... And I'll tell you this, you know, having covered the company for so long, I feel like the entire experience working with the publishing industry and the Authors Guild over a project that Google knew in its heart, or at least believed in its heart, was going to be beneficial, has left them with sort of a sour taste in their mouth. I remember back in the day, I would visit the Google offices, and there would be a whole floor of bustling employees working on the, the Google project. Now, I don't, I'm not saying there were thousands of employees, but it was a fairly significant project for them. Now they have just a handful of people who are devoted to the project. It's architect Dan Clancy has moved on. I think Google got what it needed. And that's, you know, this vast trove of books. And the real value of that for Google is improving its search, separating it as a search engine above any other search engine because nobody else, you know, Bing, nobody else has access to the 20 million volumes, all of this human knowledge that Google now has. And this trove now enables Google to come up with new research tools. So I think you're going to see Google push the envelope in terms of its translations, in terms of its research tools and engrams, all of these things that having this massive, crawlable database of knowledge can provide for them that other companies don't have. Andrew, what's the practical nuts and bolts out of this? Are people really using Google's search methodology in books and finding them? And has Google put out any statistics that indicates that it's a great success or it's just a big tempest in a teapot? Google hasn't put out any statistics that would, you know, in terms of dollars and cents. And I'll say only that Google's attempts to sell ebooks have not gone terribly well. I mean, their bookstore effort, Google Play, is, you know, lagging well behind. There has a very small market penetration. But that's really not what Google got in the game for here. You know, Google really wanted these books for some of the reasons that I just mentioned here. Having, you know, 20 million books, having this great, vast store of human knowledge as it's been gathered throughout history you know, available for their, their machines to crawl and for their engineers to work with is really going to help them separate themselves as a search engine and is really going to help them develop new tools that their competition is just not going to have. He really has. If you haven't read the decision uh, to our listeners out there, the judge really has written kind of a, a love letter to Google Books. I mean, talking about the the fact that Google Books advances the arts and sciences, facilitates access for uh, the disabled, is, is an invaluable research tool for scholars and students and librarians and teachers. Uh, he, go, he goes down a list of the social benefits from Google Books, and uh, he clearly has high regard for uh, what it's achieved. He certainly does. And, and by the same token, he also you know, notes that there's really been no discernible harm to the copyright owners either. So he kind of you know, cuts against the Authors Guild on two counts there. Well, Bob and Andrew, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. We'd like to invite Andrew to share his clothing thoughts and contact information. So let's start with you, Andrew. 
Sure. Well, I am delighted to talk with anybody about this issue all the time. I, and I can be reached at aalbanese at publishersweekly.com for those who want to email me. And I also have written a short ebook on the Apple ebook price fixing scan. It's available, case, excuse me, and it's available uh, through all of your major ebook providers. It's called The Battle of 999, how Amazon, Apple, and the big six publishers changed the ebook world overnight. And my final thought on Google is that it's really sad that it took this long and that it had to go through this much litigation. I think the fair use ruling may ultimately prove very beneficial, but I think this was one of those cases where you're better off threatening a lawsuit than actually bringing it, You know, where the threat of litigation might actually bring people to the table and you might work out a creative solution rather than going through eight years and all of the waste of, of resources that it took to get to this point. So in the future, I hope that we can have more conversation and more transparent conversation and a little less litigation. Great. Well, thank you very much. And Bob, we've now come to the point in the show where you and I have about 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts before we're cut off by the buzzers. So are you set? There you go. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that fair use is a defense to copyright. I mean, the judge here starts out by saying that the plaintiffs did establish a prima facie case of copyright infringement, but that Google has made out a fair use defense. I think his arguments are pretty airtight here, and I'd be surprised if this case gets overturned on appeal. You know, he, he makes a, a good argument. As I say, he's a fan of Google Books, but uh, his arguments are sound, and I think the way Google is doing it is consistent with fair use. So uh, that's about all I have to say on it. Bob, I completely agree with you, and I, and I agree with Andrew as well. I think that having the books available to the general public is a phenomenal resource and definitely increases the level of information and knowledge that's available on the Internet. It's a great thing. I'm sorry that Google and the Authors Guild and potentially the other interested parties weren't able to work out a settlement because the people that wrote those books should be compensated for their work and the views that are there and, and the money that Google's and others are making on it. I just think they ought to share. Well, it sounds good. I'd like to uh, just take a moment to thank Andrew for taking the time to be with us today and for your uh, really insightful thoughts. Thanks through many years, I guess, of covering this case. Uh, really enjoyed having you on the show today. My pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with both of you. Bob, that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.